toddler's ABCs. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Cutler's ABCs. Athletics beyond coronavirus. Hillel Ascribe Welcome to Hillel Cutler's ABC's Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. I'm Hillel Cutler, a veteran journalist who specializes in both healthcare and sports. Sometimes I write about healthcare within sports, like medical providers who work at ski resorts or those tending to athletes at the Olympics. In this era of the coronavirus and the lockdown that is helping to save our lives by limiting the spread of the disease, I think often of what the people who work in sports are experiencing at a time that they would normally be on the field, the court, or the rink. I think of the athletes, the coaches, the broadcasters, the executives, the game day staff, and I'm interested in how fans are faring now. On this podcast, I interview them about the very real here and now, and also about the day after, when the lives that we prefer to live can resume, and when the sports we love return. I welcome your comments, including suggestions for interviews. Just email me at hk at hilleldescribedcommunications.com. My guest today is Gary Thorne, who's at home in Santa Barbara, California, not broadcasting the opener of the Baltimore Orioles versus Chicago White Sox series from Camden Yards. Since 2007, Gary has been the Orioles' play-by-play man on the Mid-Atlantic Sports Network. He began his baseball broadcasting career in 1985 with the New York Mets and later worked for the Chicago White Sox briefly. Nationally and internationally, he's broadcast scores of World Series games, All-Star games, and regular season games for ESPN and the MLB Network. Or maybe were it not for the shutdown and were he still be broadcasting hockey, Gary would be preparing to do the play-by-play in the Stanley Cup Final. He's worked in hockey most prominently for the New Jersey Devils, ESPN, the NHL Network, and during the 02 Olympics in BC. Gary Thorne, welcome to Hillel Cutler's ABC's Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. Hey, thank you. Great to, great to be with you. It's great to hear your voice and to see you, Gary. Early in the coronavirus shut down, which shut down, of course, sports as well. I was really amused when Joe Buck, the great all-around baseball and football announcer, was narrating people's sort of ridiculous videos, and he was doing it for charity, like two kids on a lawn playing football, a dad swatting a Nerf basketball against his son, even a marble race. And then there was this British rugby announcer named Nick Heath, who was broadcasting, doing kind of the same thing, went to a park, was broadcasting dogs chasing each other. And I'm wondering if you have any ridiculous stories, either broadcast or otherwise, from this experience of the last two plus months of downtime? Well, I haven't done any, uh, certainly haven't done any of that. But uh, what we have done is uh, a ton of interviews. I mean, uh, all the people in the business trying to keep up with, uh, as you are, with what's going on, it's resulted in uh, probably full, more conversations with other broadcasters and writers than we've ever had before, uh, because everybody's just trying to figure out what the heck's going on. What are we doing? What are we going to be doing? Uh, where are we going from here? Uh, but I've pretty much uh, been at home. Uh, I've got a younger daughter in school, so we're doing online schooling. Uh, so that takes up a good deal of time. And otherwise, we've done we've done very well. I I don't have the anxiety. I guess a lot of people do. Uh, I'm very happy here at home, and I 
days are full. And uh, I sometimes wonder how the hell I did anything else because it seems like uh, the days just disappear uh, doing work around the house uh, uh, and uh, talking to folks uh, in the business. So it's been, uh, I mean, I haven't, you know, I just hope we get out of this and get out of it soon. But um, I've had a, a good time of it. It's been a very positive experience for me. You're not hinting that you're thinking of staying at home permanently, are you? Well, I've always been thinking of that here. I'm at a point where I've only done year-to-year -year contracts by my own choice over the last, I guess, five years um, with the Orioles. Um, and it's one of those we'll see. Uh, I'm never going to retire, retire. I don't want to do nothing. But I've got other interests. And uh, when the time comes that I feel like that's enough and travel is the primary question about that, um, and I'll, uh, and I'll hang it up and, uh, hopefully go on doing some other stuff and trimming the roses. So what are your days like now? Well, we're, uh, I mean, I'm up, we're up in the morning here. Most of the morning is taken up with, uh, my daughter's school work. We try and get that done early online, um, work with her my wife and I working with her on that. And then I'm, uh, I'm out for the first, uh, exercise, either biking or walking. And then uh, come back and we'll do, uh, we usually do a lunch. We try and support the local businesses with, by, by buying uh, takeout lunches here and bring them back home. And then in the afternoon, it's work around the house. Um, it's all that stuff that I hadn't done for all those years, uh, being on the road all summer. And then we'll spend some time, uh, um, you know, reading or swimming or, uh, again, I go back out in the afternoon and do uh, something else, biking or walking or something, and then do my other uh, the strength exercises just to try and stay in shape. That's been one of the hardest things. I'm a user of the Y here, and without the YMCA being open or private gyms being open, trying to get a routine in every day is, has not been easy. Um, and then, you know, it's time for dinner, and then we have a sit-down at night, which I love, where we uh, uh, movie night usually or documentary stuff, uh, which we do as a family and uh time to go to bed and then we get up and do it again so how does how does the broadcaster like yourself how does somebody in that field stay sharp or is it is it is the downtime not affecting you in that way well we do the same i do the same thing in the course of the day that i would have done if i was doing games i'm on all the sites i'm talking to uh, other broadcasters uh, i'm reading the newspapers in the different cities <clears throat> and stuff online for sports so that part of it really hasn't changed. I still do the work as if I were still doing games uh, and continue to do what would be homework, uh, reading the stuff as both as a fan and as a broadcaster. So that part really is, you know, well, that's what we can do. Uh, you're not involved a lot with the players, obviously, um, but there isn't anything really to talk to them about. They're doing the same thing we are at this point. So we, uh, so you just keep abreast of what's going on in the, in the world uh, and follow the sports through the newspapers and online. So what's your gut, what is your gut telling you about this idea of resuming or really starting baseball on July the 4th? I mean, this has been pointed to in the last few days as a pivotal week coming up in terms of the negotiations. I think it is a pivotal week because if they can't get it, they can't come to an agreement this week, then the time really gets boxed in. You almost don't have enough time to get in an 82 game, 80 game schedule. And if you can't do that, it's not going to be worth coming back for. Um, I don't think the money thing, I think, is a red herring. Uh, they'll agree to the money thing. They'll get that worked out. It's the other. It's the health side of it that's the real question. 
as to how you're going to do this with all of the different stories that have been put out there, all the considerations, playing in one place, playing in home yards, no travel you know, on the road for anybody except the team kind of thing, uh, uh, realigning the divisions. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I just think there's so many complications to this. I think it's a 50-50 proposition at this point, but certainly there's no guarantee it's going to come back. That it's going to come back for the season at all? For the season at all, yeah, because it comes a point where it just isn't worth it. I mean, uh, you can't be running this thing into December uh, for a World Series, and 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 if you don't play enough games, and are you really are you really playing a baseball season? I mean, are you really giving the best teams a chance to be the number one clubs going into the playoffs? I mean, all of that comes into play, and it's got to be meaningful. I mean, fans want to see the games. The games have got to have some meaning. And then what are you going to do for the long term statistically if you do come back and play 80 games? How do you count this? I mean, what do you do with all the numbers for the players and for the clubs historically uh, for the game? And I don't know what the answer to that is, um, but I think that's, that's, that's the least of anybody's concern. Right now it's about how do you test? How do you keep people safe? And not just the players, uh, but also those who have got to work and you will have workers. You may not have fans on the stands, but you've got to have workers. You've got grounds crew and maintenance people, and uh, there are a lot of folks who are going to be involved, uh, no matter how you set this up, that you've got to make sure you're protecting. I mean, have you and your family talked about what would happen if, depending on the scenario, if the season were to start, would they join you, would they not, for safety reasons? Oh, they wouldn't join me. I wouldn't want them to. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but again, who knows? At this point in time, I'm of the feeling, why can't we do this from home? The way they're talking, I mean, we're not going to be able to go to the clubhouse. We're not going to be on the field. We're not going to be on the, we probably won't be traveling. Um, so I'd love to set up a studio at home. If we're going to do it off a monitor. I can do it just as well off a monitor in my house as I can at a monitor at the ballpark. That's a fascinating concept. I hadn't thought about that. So this would really take us back to the old days of baseball mm. broadcasting. Yep. Even, of course, yeah, really Reagan talked about that experience in Illinois doing the Cubs games. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, it's doable. The technology clearly is there. You know, we're doing it on Zoom. We can use something like Zoom. All you got to have is a monitor and be able to pick up the game, uh, which is going to be broadcast by one group. It's not as though every team's going to, uh, have their own broadcast as far as the pictures are concerned. You're not. So, uh, you know, I don't think they'll do that. Um, but, but we'll see. And really making decisions about this, you're making decisions about nothing because you haven't got a clue as to how this is going to be run or where you're going to be, or where the team's going to be, or what they're thinking about in terms of how they're going to blend the broadcasting into this. Because in the end, the only reason they're coming back is for money. And the only reason they're going to make money is because of the TV broadcast. Mm -hmm. So, but the thing, one thing that hasn't been talked about, at least publicly, is how do you do the TV broadcast? Uh, everything's been a concern about getting the players back in spring training and, and where are you going to play these games? But uh, without, without the good setup for broadcasting, I mean, there isn't any money. So how, that's, that's uh, absolutely fascinating. So how has that, has that been on the agenda? Is there a broadcast committee, for example, either in Major League Baseball or, or, or a broadcaster? So 
in a sense, sort of like a union or some kind of representation yeah. part of the discussion. Well, there is no union. There is after us. Some of us, I've been a part of that American Federation of Radio and Television Artists, but there aren't many clubs that have that anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I think in New York still is an after location. And I was a member of after when I was working for ABC and NBC and, and for the Mets. Uh, but but there's been no there isn't a committee uh, and there hasn't been much discussion about this and uh, a week ago a group of us got together broadcasters play-by-play -play people primarily got together to try and organize something and asked after if even though some of us are not members at the current time whether after would go forward with MLB and start a discussion about this so we have some idea of what we're talking about and they agreed so we're waiting right now on uh, an attorney with AFTRA who's gone to MLB and and just to coordinate it's not a there's no friction here it's just trying to get some information and uh, be involved in the decision about the broadcast right it seems like it, it, it is a very important part of the um, the mix it's the money mm -hmm. hey let's be frank about it it's the money there aren't going to be any fans in the stands, and the only way you're going to make money is off the broadcast on television. Right. Right, which is all the more reason why I'm surprised that this has not been part of, not just part, but why this has not been front and center from the beginning as, this, as the talks have gotten more serious. Because again, without, without a way to broadcast, there is no, you know, it's part and parcel. and It's impossible to to disconnect it from the bigger picture, it seems to me. Yeah. Well, I just everybody, I think, I just think, number one, it's because the union and Major League Baseball and the owners are taking prime space on this, as you would expect. And the other thing is, I just think it's kind of taken for granted if, uh, if they come back and they're going to play games, that uh, somehow, magically, it'll get out on the air, because it always does. <laughs> and uh, I think that's kind of what happens. And so they just leave it to the end, and it'll all work out. Which you probably will. Well, today is Memorial Day, and I know that the military means a lot to you. And I'm wondering if there are any personal stories that you like to share about people in your family, neighbors, people you grew up with, people you're some in some way connected to who, who fell in battle. Well, on the Memorial Day, my uh, uh, my primary thought goes to my father, who passed away a number of years ago. But uh, my dad was not involved in D-Day, but he was involved in the Battle of the Bulge, and he was an engineer, Army Corps of Engineers, and uh, was drafted uh, in his 30s uh, because of the need for men, and uh, ended up going over to Europe and, uh, and had that very horrendous, horrific time at the Bulge. And uh, like most of the people of his generation, there was very little discussion about that. Uh, they were inclined not to tell the stories. Um, and understandably so. I think it was so heart-wrenching and so horrifying that to dredge that up again, even to tell your own family about it, was almost impossible. And so he didn't talk very much about it, but there were times when there'd be a couple of things said about, you know, two days in the foxholes at the Battle of the Bulge without getting out of it, he and another guy share a foxhole and cans of beans that were cold and, um, you know, fighting off German troops with their final surge. So I went on Memorial Day, he, he survived the war, came back, but an entirely different person. He clearly had post 
traumatic syndrome. There was no question about that. And of course, it never got treated. These guys came back and just went back into their lives, their livelihood and their work and their families. No one even know what the post-traumatic syndrome was. I think that there wasn't even mentioned at the time. So I think about him. That's where my primary is. And for the few left who fought in World War II, I mean, it's. Uh, I hope we don't forget the, the immense cost of that war, and not just for those who died, but for those who came back and uh, would never be the same for the rest of their lives because of what they'd seen and and what they had gone through. And what was your dad's name? Uh, Gerald Thorne. And what did he do for a living after after he returned to the states? He was a plumber steam fitter. That's what he was before. Yeah. He was uh, he worked for major buildings. He built a lot of. We lived in Maine. He did a lot of work on some of the major university buildings, putting in uh, plumbing and heating plants. Um, he was really good. He was a master plumber. Uh, and uh, worked on some big jobs. That's what he did before, and that's what he did when he came back. Are, are there things that he took with him to Europe or that he took back from Europe that are part of the family or things that you look at, pictures, equipment, that kind of thing? There weren't many pictures, um, only a couple. Um, he was at La Havre in France after the Battle of the Belges for recuperation purposes. There is a picture of him there that we have, uh, one of the few. I do have his uniform, oh. uh, and we have, he brought home his M1, which I'm not sure was legal, but he brought it home anyway. Um, so we've had that, but that really is about it. There weren't any other, he didn't collect souvenirs. He wasn't somebody who was going to do that. He just wanted to get back home. I, I it just, it's so interesting we're having this conversation now because just by chance, I know that you're a big reader, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but just by chance, I'm reading a book now, this book called The Game Must Go On, Hank Greenberg, Pete Gray, and the Great Days of Baseball on the Home Front of World War II. Mm. And I learned to my astonishment that there were two Major League ball players who were killed in World War II, yep. uh, very briefly in the Major Leagues, a guy named Elmer Gideon, who was a Washington Senator's outfielder, was killed in France. April 20th, 1944, Harry O'Neill, a catcher with the Philadelphia A's, was killed at Iwo Jima, actually March 6th, 1945. I went back to the box score of the game dealing with Harry O'Neill because the writer sort of um, hints at something interesting that happened in that game. He, it was a road game in Detroit. He came in to catch the bottom of the eighth. Okay, they were getting killed. They lost 16 to three, okay? He came into, Kenny Mack put him in in the bottom of the eighth, and he caught. He did not bat on the top of the ninth. They sent five men to the plate the next inning, and the pitcher, the down 16 to three, the pitcher batted and made the last out on the ground ball. But this poor guy, Harry O'Neill, did not get to bat because his spot in the order had just passed the last out of the eighth inning. So I thought to myself, well, now why didn't Connie Mack put him into pinch hit in the top of the inning and then put him in the field, let him get in the bat? The reason I mention that is because that was his only major league appearance. That was it. Yep. Now the poor guy was killed at Iwo Jima in 1945. Yep. Just one of those interesting incidents because war stories like all stories to me and I think to you are people stories. And yep. it's the people involved that are, um, are so compelling. Now, I, I was reading, I was watching, I should say, many of the episodes of your 
series that I like so much called Hitting the Books and different books that you talk about yourself to the camera and also when you interview people in baseball about the books. And two of them that I noticed that I wrote down after watching them were All Quiet on the Western Front and the Nuremberg Legacy, so those World War I and World War II. And I'm wondering, especially today, what, what you think of when you think of those books or other, other books dealing with war on Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always been, uh, I love history, number one, and uh, I've always, the history of the two world wars and uh, the Civil War, I've read a lot. I've got Shelby Foote, who uh, wrote extensively on the Civil War. I've, I've got his whole collection of books, along with Bruce Canton's books. Uh, it is a story of people. And sometimes I think that gets forgotten. We, how many people died in the thousands? Uh, you know, we hear the numbers, but that's not what the war was about on an individual basis. And to hear, read these stories all quiet on the rest in front about, about how, what these men, were, men and women were going through <clears throat> in a tunnel warfare, trench warfare, I mean, uh, inhuman, I often think is the only word to describe war, any war, but, and it changes so much with the technology from World War I to World War II as to what the, what the war looked like. Um, and All Quiet on the Western Front, I just thought was one of the best World War I books to give you a flavor and a sense of what the men, and I say men because they were the ones who were fighting at the time, women weren't involved, weren't allowed, uh, was one of the best at really feeling what that was about. And then I've always been interested as an attorney, the Nuremberg trials um, legally have always been of interest to me, uh, international law and how it developed and how the Nuremberg trials went forward uh, in a most unique way, even to this day, there's never been anything quite like the Nuremberg trials and trying to bring the Nazis who were involved in those horrific camps um, to justice. And I've known somebody who went to law school with his dad was actually at Nuremberg and was one of the individuals involved in the prosecutions. Um, and so I've talked with the, he's a good friend about what his father said and how, how it came down, what it was like. Um, and it's just, that's more really a legal interest. That book is rather technical on some of the legal issues that were involved, international law issues and how they were able to go forward with the Nuremberg trials. So I just, uh, I mean, I think it gives you a perspective and then, as you said, an individual perspective and what they were going through and what it was like, uh, both during the war and then after, as far as the Nuremberg trials were concerned. So all the years that you worked for the Orioles and previously when you lived in Washington, did you get out to see the many battlefields, the Civil War battlefields in the region? Yeah. Yeah, I actually lived very close to Manassas, which was one of the uh, Civil War sites. When I was living down there, I lived out in Northern Virginia, so I wasn't very far from um, a number of the battlefields. And it's, I've always thought, Civil War-wise, it's almost impossible when you go to these places that even in Gettysburg that are so beautiful. I mean, the, the nature of the valley now and what it looks like, it's hard to imagine the, the deaths that were going on in these battles in places that were really naturally gorgeous. 
with the orchards and the fields and it was just beautiful country and it is beautiful country again to think of what was going on there is uh i've always just i just shake my head trying to picture what what this looked like when these men were going literally hand-to-hand -hand combat on these in these areas are there particular battlefields that have meant a lot to you to visit where you learned something that was really important for you to understand about a battle by seeing it? Mm. I mean, Gettysburg will always be, I guess, at the top of the list because of uh, how much it mattered to the outcome of the Civil War and the, the destruction that went on there and the deaths that occurred there. And uh, uh, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, who was leading one of the divisions, is from Maine, was one of the presidents of Bowdoin College, uh, was wounded, went back to the Civil War, was one of the really recognized generals uh, on, for the Northern side during the Civil War. So to go and see where they, they held up on one of the edges at Gettysburg, the division that he was in charge of, uh, to see that, uh, that was very meaningful to me because he's somebody I've always read a good deal about just because he was from Maine and his connection with the state and with the college. So what is it about books that got you started in this idea to do a kind of a regular series, I guess I'd call it, on the air about books? Well, I love reading, obviously. I wouldn't be doing this. I've been a library person. I believe in libraries. Next to public schools, I think libraries are perhaps the most important institutions in a democracy because they open up the world uh, for everybody. Uh, and, and I spent in my childhood a good deal of time at the library, reading, studying, working. I would go there, take my homework there when I was in school, find a table, and uh, I've just, I, I love to read. And so when we started talking about that with the Orioles, I mean, we really started thinking about the kids. We have a giveaway that we do uh, at the end of the year where we, we buy books and we give them to children who come to the uh, come to games just unannounced. We'll go out to the gates or to the play area and we'll uh, award them books of different sorts uh, that we select. And then people started wanting to wanting to come on, other broadcasters and writers. And you know, I've written a book and I would love to talk about it with you. So we started interviewing people. Uh, in a, the whole concept at the beginning was about books I read during the season on the road. That's where we started. Mm -hmm. But then it expanded and, uh, and got to be children's books. And then people who I knew, broadcasters, writers like yourself, who wanted to come on and, uh, and talk about a book, either that they had written themselves or one, what was their favorite book uh, in their lifetime that they had read. And it's just fun. I mean, we just did that, hopefully, to promote the use of books. The Baltimore Public Library was tremendous. They, uh, we joined with them. We wanted to promote the Baltimore Public Library. So they had members of their staff uh, did book recommendations for us every week. Some different member of the staff would do a little paragraph on a write-up of what one of their favorite books at the current time was. And uh, when they held events, we publicized on our site events that were being held for kids or conferences where the public could go or speakers who were gonna be at the library, anything that would promote the, uh, the use of the library. And that's how we started it and it's been great fun. 
Well, I have a trivia question for you. Who is the no, player? I'm bad at trivia. <laughs> you got to know this one. Who is the player you interviewed about a book about the periodic table? About the periodic table? I interviewed somebody about the periodic table? Well, it, it wasn't for the book series, but it was about baseball. But uh, in the course of that conversation, you asked him about, or he discussed this book about the periodic table. I'll give you a hint. His name, <laughs> his name could have been Darren Odahowski. Could have been. Dar Darren O'Day, who told the story. Darren O'Day? We end, I don't. I don't remember. We ended up talking about the periodic table with Darren uh, about a book that he read about the periodic table because the conversation was about him almost going or trying to get into medical school. Yes, yes, I remember that. I remember that we did that about yeah going to medical school, and one of those two roads diverged, and he uh, took the one that made all the difference. Uh, yeah, Darren was very thoughtful about those things, and obviously, still had. You could tell Darren had that. That's that little side of him that was always wondering, what if? Well, I guess we all have that about certain turns in life, but what if? And going to medical school and being a doctor was, was something that was a what if for him that he wondered about. And he certainly was smart enough, intelligent enough, and cared enough about it that if he wanted to, he could have done it. Well, there are, there are a few guys, interestingly enough, few, not many, but a few baseball players who went on to medical school. Of course, Bobby Brown, former president of the American League and multi-world champion, multi-time world champion with the Yankees. He's now about 95 years old. Of course, there's a great story, you know, that Bobby Brown and Yogi Berra roomied together. And Yogi Berra was prone to read comic books and Bobby Brown was reading his medical textbooks. <laughs> Yogi finishes his comic book and says, how did, your book, how did yours turn out? <laughs> <laughs> that would be Yogi. <laughs> oh, that would be Yogi, yeah, yeah. It's great. Bobby Brown, 95 years old. Well, once a month, I know from a story I did way back when about you, uh, you mentioned that once a month you wear a pin of a hall of, the Hall of Fame or the Hall, or a hall of Famer, and that for one week you wear a Jackie Robinson pin. And I recently did a long, a long interview with Carl Erskine about many, the many years he played with Jackie Robinson in Brooklyn Nine Years. And I'm wondering if you can explain the, the connection you have to Jackie Robinson to the extent that you wear the pin, his pin. I know you didn't know him, but what, what is that he meant to you to the extent that you have done that? Well, I guess first and foremost, as a fan, um, I have just such tremendous respect for what Robinson did, uh, for what he went through, um, all of the discrimination practiced against him, both before he became a ball player and after he became a ball player and all the stories about not being able to stay in the same hotel as the team or couldn't eat in the same restaurant and and uh, the stories about branch ricky trying to find the guy who was going to be slapped in the face repeatedly uh, verbally and was going to be able to take it and still produce and be a ball player and be the first to lead blacks into the game um I just, the highest respect for him. So that's where it all begins. And then I got, uh, I did work for the Hall of Fame uh, in for a number of years. I emceed the Sundays, the induction day. And I got to meet uh, Rachel and her daughter, Jackie's wife. And just the nicest, kindest person that you would ever want to meet. I mean, just an absolutely wonderful family. 
and I sat with her on a number of days there at, at the hall and we talked and talk about what it was like what it was like for Jackie, what it was like for her, what it was like for the family. Um, and so I came to have tremendous respect for her who carried on for Jackie with the foundation work that they do with scholarships and, and outreach. And uh, so, I mean, that's, that's how it came about. And, and I, you don't want to forget those things. And so Jackie Robinson day or week, whatever it turned out to be, I would wear, I always wear the 42 pin uh, that was put out when they retired his number around Major League Baseball, just out of respect and, and out of remembrance. It seems like such a shame that this year, of all years that were shut down in society and in sports, that it happens to be this year, which is the centennial year of the founding of the Negro Leagues. And they had such a, an array of events and tie-ins and historical connections and just sort of great turn back the clock ideas for how to make this all meaningful to the current day fan. And it's all been kind of washed away. It's sort of like the Tokyo Olympics, like everything is going to be pushed back in essence till 2021. And we're going to pretend it's 2020, but it's not. And um, it seems to me like that's one of the casualties, one of the sad casualties of in sports of this, um, of this shutdown. Yeah. It really is. Uh, and we had already planned in the off season with the Orioles, with our the producer, she and I had talked a lot about this. We were going to make it a year, a year, full year effort uh, of recognizing the Negro league teams that had played in Baltimore hmm. and recognize the individual players and tell us some stories about them and their history uh, throughout the season. Um, and we lost all that. And I think that would have gone on in a number of cities that did have Negro League teams, that you would have had that throughout the season. You would have had stories and recognitions about uh, what went on in those cities with those leagues. And that's sad. That really is sad because it's very hard to get that back again because you just don't have the connection. And no matter what happens this year, going into 2021, all of the – all I think – looking ahead to that, all of the discussions and stories and emphasis is going to be on getting back to a regular season. How do we do that? No matter what happens here in 2020. So trying to build something else into that story in 2021 is going to be, I think, very hard to do. Right. Well, there's this one, there's one guy I know meant a lot to you professionally, and I just wanted to play something really quickly. I thought Gary Thorne, and I think he is today, as talented as any sports broadcaster in America. But more than his talent, he had the best damn personality I have ever been around. It was just wonderful. And a, and a thrill to work with him. I enjoyed it so much. That was Bob Murphy talking at an event in 1990 in Manhattan, in which he was talking about the Mets through the years from 1960 up to that point. And out of the blue, he was talking about his broadcast partners and their there it is. He was talking about you. And I know that I know that he meant a lot to you. And I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit. Well, <clears throat> Bob was my first, uh, I, I went to work in Major League Baseball in 1985 with the Mets on radio. And Bob Murphy and I were the twosome. Um, 
I mean, it was, the whole thing was serendipitous really because I was practicing law and this whole thing came about going to the major leagues kind of fortuitously. And to go with the Mets of all teams in New York for someone who, who didn't plan to be doing this for his living. And then for Murph, who had, was, one of the, was one of the original three, of course, with Ralph Kiner and Lindsey Nelson to broadcast Mets games. And a, just, you know, a, such a celebrated individual in, in New York and in baseball. And so when I ended up being hired, Frank Cashin was the GM. The first phone call I got after the hiring was done, before it was public, uh, Murph was told. And Bob called me up. We'd never talked, never met, nothing. Uh, Bob called me on the phone. He said, you know something? He says, I don't know who the hell you are. <laughs> well, what you, what you do. But he said, if Frank Cashin says you're, you're good enough to be doing this job, that's all I need to know. And, uh, and laughed. And that began uh, a very close relationship. I mean, Murph was my mentor. Uh, could not have done more for me in that first year and throughout the years I worked with him of introducing me to everybody. I mean, Murph made sure I knew every broadcaster in every city and did it personally. <clears throat> and, and anything I needed to know or any help I needed or anybody I needed to have an introduction to, uh, Bob would do it. And then on the air, we just had fun. I mean, I love Murph. And, and he obviously, as time went by, came to feel the same way about me. So I think what happened was we ended up with a very genuine broadcast. Um, it was a couple of people who respected each other, who were friends, who loved baseball, were sitting there during, doing a game. And uh, the egos weren't involved. I mean, in this broadcast business, there's a lot of egos. you got to have it or you don't do it. And sometimes that gets in the way of relationships in the booth. Um, but it, that was never the way with Murphy. <clears throat> we, we shared. Um, we worked hard at it. Murph was meticulous in, in the manner in which he broadcast, in preparing for the games, which I learned from him, uh, and, and brought to it a genuine love of the game that came through the fans, which is why the fans ended up loving him so much. And uh, it was great. I mean, I, I always said the only bad part about my career in Major League Baseball has been I started at the top. Uh, there was no place else to go. I'm working with Bob Murphy on radio in New York for the Mets, who during the mid-80s owned the city over the Yankees and everybody else. In my second year, we, the team wins a World Series uh, with a storybook group of guys. Um, so, I, I mean, where do you go from there? <laughs> it's like maybe it's time to retire after year two and take the ring and go home. So, so Bob met the world to me, and we, we, we were friends right until his passing. And uh, I think of him often uh, and consider him to be one of, in my life, one of my most important uh, relationships. Now, you apparently use a scorecard that he designed. I'm wondering, what, what is it about that scorecard that is helpful to you? <clears throat> Knowing Murph used it, really. I mean, there are tons of scorecards out there, and everybody wants to devise another one or something. But <clears throat> I, uh, in fact, I got one prepared for this year, <clears throat> which, of course, I, at this point, at least haven't used while we're doing this. And I've used the Bob Murphy scorebook pages 
uh, it's just a, it has a place to put the defenders to line up in, and then at the top of it, put the defensive unit on the other side and keep track of uh, pitchers and what you do during the course of a game. But it's a matter of what you use first and what you're familiar with and what you feel comfortable with. And I just do it at this point, knowing uh, it was something Murph had and Murph used, I would never change it, if only for that reason. Uh, it makes me smile when I do the games and think of Murph using it too. It's such a beautiful tribute, Gary, just to hear you say that. I mean, I thought it was more of a practical reason, but to hear about this emotional connection to him coming through in the use of the scorecard is really very powerful to hear. Well, that's the way it was with us. <clears throat> I mean, we really, uh, we really were close uh, in that regard. And, you know, Murph, <clears throat> Murph taught me that one of the things he said on, I think, day one, first game we ever did, which I'm petrified, because it was a Shea Stadium in New York, and you go through the, what the hell am I doing here? Um, and go in and sit with Murph, and, uh, and Bob just said, just remember something. He said, we're partners. I'll always have your back, and I expect you to have mine. And I'm not sure, I mean, I understood a little bit of that, but as time went on, I really came to understand what he meant by that and how important it was. I know Murph never said an unkind word about me when I wasn't there. I know that. And I did the same thing regarding Bob. And that's what he was talking about, that you take care of the guy you're working with as a partner, both on the air and off. He believed that. He believed that to its core. And, uh, and I do too. Because uh, there's a lot that goes on around the game where, again, because of the egos in part, things are said outside of the booth about the person you're working with that aren't necessarily positive. Um, that didn't happen with us. Uh, it just, you, you, I got your back, and he meant it. You, you seem to have a very nice rapport during your all these Oriole years with fellow guy from Maine, Mike Bordick, and also with Jim Palmer, great pitcher. You and Palmer seem to really have a, maybe it's the fact that you're contemporaries in terms of age, but um, you, see, you seem to have a, I think, I think that he has gotten much, much better in the booth over the years. And I think that one of the reasons is because he works with you. Well, thank you. <laughs> I hope that's true. Uh, and I hope the same holds the other way around. Well, again, this is a relationship. Jim and I have a very positive relationship. I mean, I have great respect for him as both a, a player and as a broadcaster. And Jim has, uh, I know he has respect for me as a broadcaster, he'll say things that are very complimentary to others in my presence uh, about the work I do in preparing and, and, and always positive about that. Plus he's got, a, he's got a very dry sense of humor and laughing to me is just a part of what we do. I, I believe that. And, and, and Jim and I are able to share that. And sometimes Jim's a great foil for me because he'll, he, he'll have the, the short, quiet remark to something said that's really funny. He's really funny in doing it that way. And I mean, it just, it works. It just works. 
And the same thing with Mike Bordick. I mean, we share a lot of stuff from Maine and talk about it on the air at times. Um, when we say we have two of us in the booth, that's half the state's population is in one place at the same time. Uh, so we have, we have a good time. I mean, we, uh, I think that's very important to the broadcast. You gotta be able to smile because if you are not, the people listening aren't. And uh, that can get pretty dull if you're not doing that. Well, I mean, I, I think that you, it seems to me as a, as a viewer that you have a lot of fun in the booth. I mean, I have long enjoyed your telecast of hockey and, and of baseball. It's enjoyable to listen to and to watch, but I can, I can also tell that you're having fun in the booth. I can just tell because of mostly when something comes up that's just absurd, you don't hesitate to poke fun and point out that it's absurd. I mean, um, there's, there was one game that I think I wrote about once, which dealt with the the rain coming through the, well, the, the fact that you were playing in Toronto, Orioles were playing in Toronto, and it was actually raining, and they had to close the roof, and it just took them forever to do it. And just poking fun at that, the uh, you put up stats of that up to that point, there have been three delays for rain and one delay for bugs, you know, in all the years that they'd had a sort of semi-roof in Toronto in the Dome, and even with Glaber Torres, the way he just completely manhandled the Orioles, you know, became sort of like a running joke, it seemed, with the Yankees crew. How's Gary going to handle this now? Because it seemed like you, you ran out of superlatives to say when he hit another home run, yet another home run against the Orioles. Well, I think all of that is, I think the key to that is I, I never, you've got to be natural. Those things that happen are just, what I feel at the moment. I never script anything. I don't try and think ahead about, I mean, there are stories to tell and numbers to relate. And, but when it comes to that sort of thing, it's got to be natural. It's just got to be off the cuff. It's got to be what other people are feeling. I mean, you're only saying and talking about something that the fans are talking about. I mean, if the roof's closing and the rain's coming down and they got to start the game, everybody's going, everybody's kind of smiling. You can't help it. And you know that. And so you're only reflecting what, what you would naturally feel <clears throat> seeing the situation develop. And for all those situations, uh, that's, that's, I hope, what happens. Uh, that it just, it comes across as being a very spur of the moment, unrehearsed, uh, just, you know, commentary discussion with the fans. And if you can do that, I think you build up a relationship with the fans. They come to uh, to believe you that you're you know you're you're not making things up you're not reading off a card uh, you're just talking to them and I think that's what what you do in this business. When you open up a broadcast, do you also not have a script? I mean, you mm -hmm. just sort of know exactly how you want to set the stage for that game. No, I don't have a script. Um, I will usually on a piece of paper have three or four notes that I want to make sure of things that I want to cover, but I've gone over it in my mind. Um, and the paper really becomes a crutch. Uh, rarely do I even look at it. Um, I already know what I want to say. And sometimes I'll start and it completely changes. I'll start talking about the game or something and something will come into my mind at the moment. And uh, what I thought I was going to say, I don't say, I say something else. Um, it's just a free flow, really. I mean, thought out. It's not as though there isn't preparation and that there isn't some idea of what you want to relate to the fans to open up a ball game, but it's never scripted. 
but how do you know in your head what your mouth is going to say about the upcoming game, let's say? I have no idea. <laughs> because, I mean, you don't have an awe. You don't go, um, or you don't say, um, oh. um, or you don't stumble over the words. How do you, do you practice verbally saying what you're going to say, even if it's not scripted? No. Mm -mm. The first time it's said is when it's on the air. The only thing I've ever done uh, before that is thought about it. I don't, uh, I don't do it. I don't stand in front of a mirror and give it. I don't say it to myself. Uh, I don't do any of that. I mean, I just, it comes on the air. There are things I want to cover. I say it and, and that's it. There's something that I've always wondered about hockey broadcasters because hockey is such a fast game. And I always wonder, especially in this era in which everybody's wearing a helmet, and the only way that you can identify who's who is with the numbers. How do you keep the players straight when they're, because players don't come on or off the ice in units. There's sometimes, they, I mean, the, the forwards do, sometimes the defensemen do, but defensemen do, defensemen do, but they don't, as five as a unit, go on or off the ice together. So how do you keep straight who's who? And then it's multiplied by two teams. And then you have, sometimes the coach will make a change within a line for that play so the three line mates are not necessarily all coming out on the ice together, as you might have expected. How do you, how do you keep that straight, and how does it flow so naturally during a game? Well, I, again, that's, I wish if I had the magic answer to that, I'd just write the book and make a million dollars. I don't know. Uh, one thing, you've got to be focused. You've got to be paying attention. It used to be easier when you did have lines that stayed together. I'd pick up the centermen and I knew who the wings were. Defensive pairings generally still stay together. Uh, so you have an if you got one, you got the other in your mind. But it's largely just a matter of focus. Um, and I, I am a numbers guy. I go by the numbers because of wearing helmets and because the booths in this day and age are so far from the ice. Right, right. Uh, it's very hard uh, to make out who it is, uh, except for the number. Um, so as you go along and you, I mean, I do that, I don't memorize numbers, but I certainly familiarize myself with numbers before every game. And then I keep a sheet in front of me in my hand that has them listed numerically along with a couple of notes that I want to get in. But, um, I don't know. I mean, people have asked, you know, I wish I could tell students who want to know how to the same question. Uh, but I don't, there's no good answer to that. Uh, because I don't know. I, I do the, I've done the games and I, I simply focus on what's going on and who is that. And your mind's got to be able to keep that in order. I mean, when you got the, the line out on the ice, as soon as you pick it up, you get, it's got to stay there. So you know who's there. When the next line comes out, you got to pick it up and it's got to stay there for the duration of their shift. And that's what I try and do. And, and beyond that, I don't have the magic bullet. Does it, does it get, um, have there been any stumbles over the years? I mean, have you had problems? Oh, yeah. You say oh, yeah. one so scored and it really, it was really not on the ice at the time. Mm, I don't know that that's ever happened, but certainly the scrums in front of the net, which happen, which are <laughs> so frequent in hockey, goals are scored out of a pile up in front of the net with a loop, loose puck. Who actually touched the puck last is always difficult. I mean, uh, trying to figure that one out, you got to go back and look at the replay three or four mm -hmm. times. 
Uh, so you just, uh, you stay with it. And uh, again, it's the focus part of it. It's realizing who's out there and trying to figure out who's got the position and the stick. And, and over time, things develop. You, you, reactions of players telling you something. Who's the first guy to put his stick up in the air after a goal is scored? It's generally going to be the guy who scored the goal because he's the one who realizes it went in. And that can really help you. It's got to be immediate, but you see it. You can go with that if you're not sure of exactly who it was. And you'll 90% of the time, you'll be right about that. Um, but sure, the mistakes come with guys who change lines and, you, and suddenly somebody else is out there. But I think the key to that for me has always been, if, you don't, if you're not sure, don't say it. Wait. If the puck goes to somebody on a pass and you're looking and going, wait a minute, that's not the guy who should be out there, then don't say it. Take a look down at your sheet, see who that really is before you, before you pronounce it, and, and go from there. Right now, at the end of May, we'd be just about heading into the cup final. And I'm wondering when you're on the road or if you're back in Baltimore on a homestand, and if there's not a game that night, or if there is a game, will you come back and watch? Will you, will you sort of religiously flick on the TV and watch the, the, um, the playoff game, or in this case now, the finals game? Oh, yeah. Yep. I do that. Uh, I try and keep up with it. I enjoy it. I love playoff hockey. To me, it's the, uh, it's the absolute best in sports. There's nothing quite like it. Gary, we were talking earlier about Bob Murphy being a, an important mentor to you, and I'm wondering if there was a hockey parallel for you. Mm. Uh, um, well, growing up in Maine and being a Boston sports fan all the way around and a fan of the Bruins, as a kid, uh, I mean, it would have to be the, the Boston announcers that I listened to most. Uh, Fred Cusick, that was a local uh, star. He did the Bruins hockey uh, on TV. And then Bob Wilson, who was a tremendous radio hockey broadcaster, was doing the uh, Bruins on radio. So uh, Cusick and, and he and Bob Wilson were the two I really – I really watched a lot, listened a lot too, and they were the ones who were the most familiar to me. I mean, I, we did, because I was in Maine, we did get a hockey night in Canada on Saturdays, uh, so I would also watch that. Danny Galavan, I, I love to listen to the Danny games. Um, so they were the people, but it was primarily out of Boston, and, and those guys were, uh, were there forever. So for all the time I was growing up, they were the names regarding broadcasting for the Bruins. Did you ever go to games? Were you able? Were you? No. Did you and your family go to Boston no. for? No, I had no money. Uh, there was uh, it was all on the television and radio. I never went to a Bruins game as a kid, growing up. I mean, I got to Fenway Park a couple of times, but even that was uh, just that a couple of times. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, I think three years ago, you filled in briefly with the LA Kings. And I'm wondering whether you have opportunities like that if you were, if you have those opportunities these days or if you would consider going back to the NHL either part-time or full-time. I mean, I never say no. If I'd have done that, I wouldn't be where I am today. Uh, so, I'll, you know, if, if there are offers made, I, I would consider anything uh, that was legitimate and, and, and upfront 
the chance to do the Kings was really great fun. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it ended up being a part of it was a Canadian trip. So I, I hadn't been back to the rinks around Canada for a while and, you know, in Montreal and Toronto and uh, going through the, the West with Edmonton and such. So that was really a good time. So yeah, I, uh, I, uh, if, if something came along someone said, we'd like you to do this, I certainly would consider it. Yeah. Well, Gary Thorne, thank you very, very much for providing me with such a, such a, an illuminating and enjoyable hour of discussion on, on the program, which is called Athletics Beyond Coronavirus. Let's hope that we put the coronavirus behind us, and uh, I wish you and your family lots of good health. Same, same to you. Enjoy, and, uh, and let's hope we get back to whatever normalcy is going to be here after uh, the 19th. <laughs>